Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Eric Clark with Mega Brands, and it is Friday. Uh, is it the July 14th, I think? I don't have my calendar sitting in. Uh, July 15th, yes. And I'm here with Simeon Siegel, Managing Director, Equity Research at BMO Capital Markets. He's focused on retail and e-commerce. So the consumer, top analyst in his industry, and love to follow him on Twitter. Um, Simeon, what's up? H- happy Friday. Hey man, by the way, you're you're questioning whether it's July 14th or 15th. I'm trying to stuck on the Friday part. That's the win. <laughs> uh, Friday in the summertime, especially on the East Coast, right? <laughs> Nothing I would rather do than hang out with you. I was I was taught. Yes, you're 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 a wonderful liar. Uh, <laughs> I was talking to my wife. We're both from the East Coast, and I was like, the the only thing bad about California is in the summertime. You know, you don't have that excitement from Memorial Day to Labor Day that you have on the East Coast, or maybe even the Midwest. Every day is kind of feels spoken like, like a true spoken like a true West Coaster. It's like I have this fight with Florida. It's like everyone's just complaining. Like, you know what? Let's <laughs> let's own it. <laughs> but I, I like I like the summertime, like the excitement of man, it's on. I'm gonna work a little less and I'm gonna play a little more. And you know, you don't have that in California a little bit. So listen, man, we've gone back and forth. I, I have talked about macro and interest rates and inflation and all that kind of stuff. And it's frankly, it's exhausting for somebody who likes stocks and brands and brand relevancy. So I'm real, I've been really looking forward to our conversation because I want to really talk about the consumer. I mean, obviously inflation drives some of the consumer habits and the, and the changes that we've made during and through COVID and all that stuff. But, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear your view about just overall, you know, the consumer, what you're seeing from the companies that you follow and the trends of consumers and how they might be changing their behavior and, you know, what what companies might actually benefit from the change and what companies might, might you know, not benefit from that stuff. So let's talk about, you know, bigger picture and then we can get into 
some some stock, you know, some companies, because that's obviously what we all care about and spend all our time on and probably what our listeners want to hear. So I love it. So you and I haven't spoken about this yet, but because I've just come around to this idea and to preface, economists are very smart, much smarter than I am. But my new issue is the macro to me just seems like it's aiming to explain the market rather than predict it. Macro is this terrifying way of explaining what's actually happening in the micro. And that means it's generally on a lag. So conversations you and I have had are the fact that the word inflation simply means higher prices. You know what else means higher prices? Lower promotions. One sounds terrifying, one sounds amazing. So it's this idea of thinking through that across retail and brands two years ago, inflation kicked in when everyone raised price, but we didn't call it inflation until two years later when the cost input happened, everyone wanted to get all scared. So my point of bringing that up is I totally agree with you. I think it's very easy to get lost in the headlines, but the issue or the problem we should be analyzing are what's actually happening from the brands, what's happening from the consumer. And so I think what is interesting is you had a few big box retailers come out the end of last quarter and tell everyone that the consumer's over and we've entered a recession. Listen, whether or not we are going to enter a recession, whether or not we're, we're angling towards one technically, what you and I know is that people are still spending. The question is, what are they spending on? And my new, or, or what I think I've gotten a little bit, or I've pretended to, uh, to be a, a little bit poetic and make my own version of the macro, and say that lately, I don't think there's a, such a thing as a durable good anymore. I think it's just how long is your replenishment cycle? And that's all a curve. And if you have a small replenishment cycle like cereal, you're very inflationary right now. If you're a longer replenishment cycle like a Peloton bike, you're completely deflationary. So the question to me is, where is that arc? And where do you fit? And ultimately, and then I will stop talking, but ultimately, the brands, if they can figure out where they are on the replenishment cycle... I think they can make smarter decisions about whether to promote now or whether to actually make the very difficult decision and say, you know what, a lot of people bought a lot of three-wick candles during COVID. Maybe they're not going to buy another one in the next six months. So there's no reason for me to promote right now. Let me salvage my brands that when they come back, I've saved all those silver linings we have all heard so many people talk about. That's that, and that's the first time I've heard that phrase. When When you're talking to your companies, are, is is that a topic of conversation? And if yes, do they get it? Have they have they thought about it that way, or is this like a you know kind of an aha moment for most brands? Yeah, so it's interesting. The issue with most brands and most humans are that we're hot, we're hardwired to grow, and whether it's because of people like you and I that are pushing them on the investing or the analyst side, or whether they're, it's their own stakeholders internally and their employees that are suggesting sell another sweater, sell another shoe, sell another tent, right? We're hardwired to assume more is better, right? That's just what we do. And I think the interesting thing that you and I have talked about is what COVID made it so glaringly, I don't want to say obvious because that, that's, I'm allergic to that word, but COVID made us realize you could do more with less. COVID made us realize that you could sell less and charge more and make more money. How do I know that? Because the top L brands was the, I think it, I think these are the right numbers. They're close to them if they're not. But L brands was, I think, the seventh and fourth best stock in the S&P for two years in a row, 2020, 2021. L brands owns Victoria's Secret, Bath & Body Works at the time. And that was on declining revenues and improving profits. 
So your revenues literally went down and it was a top 10 performer two years in a row. No one thought that could happen. And so that's this pitch where it's, if you can understand, you and I are trained to think about the world and consumer demand in a 365 clean year period. And whether that's because there's four seasons or the Roman, I don't know why, but we think about how big is a company? Well, how, what, did, what did it do last year in revenues? But what if the consumer over COVID didn't spend in 12 month increments? What if they bought 18 months of demand in 12 months? Well, then that means you need to take a pause for the next six. That's a hard concept for companies. It's especially a hard concept for public companies to get a hold of. But what I hope and what I try to push and suggest is look at what L Brands did in the public sphere. Look how well they were rewarded for it. Don't give up your brand equity. That's what happened from 2008 until 2020. And in a very fast three-month period, holiday 2020, you got all your pricing power back. Try to keep it. I, I wonder, you know, every, every December, me and my team, we kind of update our brand, our brand's index. And that's my investment universe for, for, for the strategy. And we try not only to bring in some kind of younger emerging brands that we think are interesting categories, but we also, you know, we, we've kicked out brands for just clearly becoming irrelevant for whatever reason, right? A lot of that is, you know, 50% of it is quantitative, 50% of it is qualitative and assessment of the brand, the industry, you know, what management's done, a deterioration or, or, or improvement in a lot of the, the, the operating metrics, all that kind of stuff. So do you think part of that was just, you know, L Brands just, I mean, you know, that stock was just dreadful, dreadful, dreadful. And then it got to, to a point where the bar was literally at the ankle level. And so they were able to, to, to just climb over that bar. And, or do you think it was, you know, a, a meaningful change in management and style and approach and that really, that really allowed that thing to lift off? So you and I were joking in the beginning about the summer being better. You get to work a little bit less. I, I think, and, and I recognize this is a very fortunate thing to say, I think you and I actually really enjoy what we do. And one of the reasons are we're, we're analyzing, this is fun, but we're analyzing things that we understand. There's a pitfall there too. I think that consumer is actually harder to analyze because it's so easy. And biotech might be easier to analyze because it's so hard. Whether that made any sense or not, it sounds good. So we're going to go with it. But what I mean by it is before you and I are an investor, an analyst, before someone's a journalist, before someone's even an operator, they're a consumer themselves. We are all consumers. And so we bring our own biases and biases trigger this macro headline conversation. And so the fascinating thing about L Brands was the perception. This was early to mid 2020 when we upgraded the stock. The perception was that Victoria's Secret was dead. My problem was the reality was so far from that. How did I know? I didn't have to be that smart. I could just look at the fact that they sold over $5 billion worth of product. Right. What I, what I continue, so what I like to tell brands and investors is that whatever you may think, whatever you believe the rhetoric to be, revenues are the measure of customer buy-in, full stop. Gross margin is the measure of external brand perception. So you may have high revenues and people might think you're not worth anything. But the fact that they're paying for you means they want it. So what was fascinating to me about L Brands and this, I had, we had done, we made a my team, who, who fantastic team, um, spent a lot of time on this. We wrote a report back in in mid twenty twenty, said did COVID actually save retail? And the premise was everyone believes we're overstored, which we may or may not be. But what they don't 
acknowledges that first off, we're over discounted. And so we did a huge price elasticity of demand model. And what we showed was that companies like L Brands, companies like Victoria's Secret specifically, and then you and I like to talk about Under Armour a bunch. Under Armour was in this as well. We showed there are companies that could, if they committed to raising price 25%, which sounds like a lot, unless you internalize, think about it in the context of a $20 piece of clothing. But if they committed to raising price 25% and held it, they could give up 40% of their units for zero and still end up making more money, not better margin, definitely better margin, but they'd actually make more dollars. And so that was this idea where we found that the last four decades worth of retail had convinced people to stretch far, stretch far, stretch far. And there's this one invisible sweater or shoe or whatever that forces you to promote all the way backwards. No one can promote on the margin, you promote in the total. That's an important thing to remember. It's an obvious thing, but it's an important thing. And so when I try to bring that back to today, what we all hoped, right? Again, and I, and I mentioned the silver linings, I feel like accelerant and silver linings were, were once everyone got past the first three months of COVID, that's all anyone wanted to talk about. And the fear was, were you going to forget them? And they did. Everyone forgot them so quickly. And so I think that's what you want to remind people. You want to remind people you can do more with less. It doesn't mean never grow, but it means grow healthfully. Right. Let's talk a little bit about Under Armour. You know, I, I believe that Under Armour is broken, but very fixable. But I, I don't think it's going to be easy, and and it's proven to not be easy at the at the company, all the way from the brand and what it means to consumers to the actual products and how relevant and how sexy and, and importantly, I think how edgy the brand is. I, I remember the beginning of Under Armour when the stock was growing like crazy. The you know it. We, I think it peaked in somewhere in, in mid to late 2015 and is since down 84%. And I remember how edgy the brand was when they first came out. We got to protect this house. And, you know, it, it literally, I was a football player back in the day and like, it just resonated with me. And I was like, that is the coolest new brand. Forget about Nike. And, and I've heard you say a few times, you know, the know what you want to be and who you want to be and what what your core customer is and dream dreaming of being nike is probably a fool's errand right you can't compete with nike they outspend you know i guess adidas is maybe the second by a by a multi, by multiple so yeah. I, and and we've seen under armor try to compete with nike and do all those crazy deals that were expensive and and, and now have since unwound all or most of those deals, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. So what, what's your view on Under Armour today? It's the stocks around eight bucks as a business. And, and can they turn it around? Do they have the board? Do they have the brand? Do they have the people in place? And, and I'm sure you're closer to them than I am. Do they even know they have a board problem and a brand problem, all that kind of stuff? I'd love to, to hear your views on that. So, okay, a lot, a lot of really interesting things. A lot of stuff. I'm going to start from the beginning. So even before Under Armour. So you mentioned they're, they're broken but fixable. So that the way that I like to think about it, and I, it's a, it was a good segue from Victoria's Secret because I viewed it the same way. They're not dead, they're sick. And it's okay to be sick. You can, you can fix, you can cure sick. And that was the Victoria's Secret conversation. So the Victoria's Secret conversation was a gross margin conversation. At the time they had set, done, depending on which way, which part of the business you want to look at, again, over $5 billion dollars but they weren't making money. Under Armour was the same situation. So the fascinating thing about Under Armour to me 
And, and what's interesting is, and, and for, for your listeners, so Eric and I became friends before he realized we became friends because I had been negative on Peloton early on. And Eric very kindly responded to a tweet that someone had thrown out about when I was early on the Peloton negative call saying something to the effect of, yeah, he probably doesn't deserve his salary anyway. And I'm like, I know I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> the Jersey edge. <laughs> so, so this was the, so, so when you think about the Peloton call, the Peloton call is actually very similar to the Under Armour call we had years earlier. So we had to sell an Under Armour under the same premise of don't overstretch. At some point, realize that you're diluting your brand and that will catch up. What's the mathematical? What's the analytical way? What do you look for? Well, if you have a wholesale business, you look for receivables. If you don't have a wholesale business, you look at the blend between inventory and, and gross margin. And I want to say that's oversimplifying it, but it's not, right? It's quality of sale as opposed to level of sale. So within Under Armour, what they've done over the past couple of years, inspired by COVID presumably, but, but they would tell you otherwise, is they recognize that. And how do we know that? Because right now, the biggest problem facing retail is all these massive inventory levels. Under Armour is the only one for the past two years that actually had inventory dollars down. Their balance sheet inventories are down. Everyone else is trying to figure out how to explain away these massive numbers by saying it's, oh, it's don't worry about it. It's in transit. It's units. There's a lot of answers. Under Armour is literally dollars down. So they've been working on this and it, and it has been helping. How do we know that? Because Under Armour historically was a cash burner. Under Armour share count has grown over the last decade. Every other retailers is down five to 15%. Everyone's been generating cash with nothing to use it for. So they've been buying back stock. Under Armour has gone the other way. The difference between Under Armour now versus Under Armour pre-COVID is the business was effectively losing money, burning cash. And to your point, was saddled with, I'm going to call them fixed costs. They're not literally fixed costs, but the UCLA contract was effectively a fixed cost anchor around their neck, holding them down that they jumped on because to your point, Nike gets the marketing deals they want and they force you to spend up for the other ones. So they had, they had their uh, marketing costs. They had connected fitness department. They had a lot of different reasons. They had these, these hundred million dollar mistakes they had made in the past. They cleaned those up. So they got rid of those. They sold connected fitness. And now all of a sudden the business is generating cash. They're buying back stock. And the margins, let's say, are high single digits. They should, probably, they should be low double digits, but they're high single digits. But they just moved on from the CEO that has been working towards that direction. So the question becomes, do we go back to this conversation of, does this become a revenue chaser? If it becomes a revenue chaser, that's your the way you described broken but fixable. So figuring out how big should this brand be, let's be very clear about something. Given the fact that Under Armour is a wholesale business, the revenues you and I see don't even show the full story. The consumer is Under Armour is still one of the largest brands in the history of time. This is not a business that has collapsed. This is a business from a profitability perspective that has opportunity. So I agree with you. And I, I think that they are one that should be at the top of the list in terms of figuring out brand equity, recognizing underlying brand equity. And by the way, it's very hard to kill a brand. They keep trying, but it's very hard. <laughs> I mean, do you think, you know, my best analyst is my daughter, you know, I, she, she's 12 and she, you know, she's on the cutting edge of fashion and she knows what, what young people like and what they don't like. And so I'm always asking her, you know, 
Actually, she's in trouble. She told me, she she said three years ago, she said, Dad, if you don't have Target at the top of your portfolio, I will be so mad at you because Target is the only place that matters. And, I, and I, I've owned Target. And then obviously the last quarter was, you know, m- makes a grown man cry. But I, I, now I think it's probably a pretty good table pounder. But does she, does she front run you on her trades? Um, yes, with her $3. <laughs> but, but I ask her all the time. I'm like, all right, well, you know, and I, and I, I was, I was part of this, uh, kids charity where there, these are underprivileged kids and, you know, without fathers, great, great, great nonprofit. And we would meet with these kids. And I, and the first thing I do when we're sitting in group, there's like 20 kids in this high school, I'm always looking at their shoes. I want to, you know, I want to kind of know what's happening with, with every demographic, but Under Armour just consistently across all of those kinds of, of checks, just, it's like, dad, Under Armour's just not very cool, you know? And I'm like, can you, you know, how do you get the cool back? Do you, do you spend on a new brand campaign or do you need to change the brand? So, and that's why I say revenues are the measure of customer buy-in, gross margins, the measure of external brand perception. You and I can run every survey we want they would have all shown up horribly for Victoria's Secret. And yet people were coming out spending $5 billion on them. And by the way, the price points had dropped. So if the gross margin dropped, that means the price point dropped, which means the units are actually better. Right? Like you think about to get that same dollar level, even more people are coming out and buying more units, right? They're just figuring out how the math works. So from that perspective, how to elevate the brand, I, I think there's an interesting dynamic where sometimes you have to decide you and I, you walk into college, you go to your first econ 101 class, and what we learn is price elasticity of demand is all that matters. We learn that a business is broken down into an, its units and how much it costs per unit. And then we spend decades trying to forget all that. We try to get all nuanced in terms of channel mix and international and product. And, and it's how many things do you sell and what do you sell them for, full stop. And so the question becomes what, what every company has to decide is there's an equilibrium. You're right. You draw your price, your, uh, price units, supply demand curve. And you figure out where you want your price, where you want your units. That's your equilibrium. That's what you. That's what you do. No one ever sticks to that. But if you would, and if you could internalize what that right level for your business is, you might find that to elevate the brand, you can spend all the marketing dollars you want. If it's too ubiquitous, if it does not stand, I, I, I get I get flack for the comment I'm about to make, and I understand why it comes across the wrong way. But authenticity and exclusivity to me are the same thing. It's just a nicer way of saying it. Abercrombie and Fitch in its heyday, when everyone hated them, they were incredibly exclusive. They were the most authentic brand to who they were trying to be. That when, when you stretch beyond, when you decide you want to be the most inclusive, when you want to stand for all, arguably, you could be giving up levels of authenticity. No one wants to think about it like that. And I'm not suggesting this isn't a moral comment. I'm simply saying the brand needs to know who their audience is. Certain brands are mass brands that are meant to sell a lot of things to a lot of people. Certain brands are not. You have to decide where you want to be on that spectrum. And again, it's a very easy thing to say and a very hard thing to do. And it's even a harder thing to do when you're in the middle of it. But that's what helps you succeed. That's what helps you. I mean, everyone like loves to say their true North or their North star. Let's remember, I mean, the sky is made up of a constellation, right? Many, many of them. It's not one star. You got you to know where you want to be and, and play that game. I mean, listen, we, we could talk about Under Armour like for hours, probably, ju- just because I am, 
I love to build and fix things. And so I'm always, it's funny. I am generally speaking a growth investor, but within the growth investor, my mentality is I don't, I don't like to buy everything that's perfect. I like to buy the things that have the, the potential for real good growth inflection. So there's this value manager. My first job was an institutional value manager. It, it seems to be there's a value manager hidden inside of my growth bias. <laughs> so, so that's why I look at, yeah, we've owned Victoria's Secret at, at, at one time and, and, and I'm looking at Under Armour and I'm, I'm you know, kind of writing a little report right now that's, that's called Under Armour Value Trap or Raging Opportunity. I, I don't know yet. I mean, I, I know what I, if I were working there, it would be a raging opportunity because I have some very strong views about what Under Armour should be and where they should be and what, what their design should look like and what their, 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 their messaging to the consumer should be. But I don't know that they, they have any idea about any of that yet. So, I haven't heard it. So when the market has such a broad-based collapse, like you and I are seeing, Somewhat by definition, there are going to be, however you framed it, it was nice, so I, I'm not going to frame it as well, but there's going to be value-based growth opportunities. Somewhat by definition, because not every company was created equal and yet they all just collapsed. So those are the opportunities, right? You hope you don't get them too often, but those are the opportunities where you actually can go shopping. You actually can find the distressed growth opportunity. And so that's the, now to your point, the questionnaire is, what you can't be doing, and, and this, is, this is where I sometimes get into a little bit of the trap, and this is why sometimes some of my calls are early and, and I'm okay with that. Sometimes you and I might want, might believe that the brand can do something and believe that if they do that, the stock will respond positively or negatively, but until the company actually decides to follow course, it doesn't really matter. Right. You and I can write the hypothetical fix all we want. If it's not taken, we're barking up the wrong tree. So, so that's part of that, where at the end of the day, you want to make sure that what you and I know is both obvious enough that a manager sees it as well, but not too obvious because otherwise it theoretically would have been priced into the stock. Right. So, so let's talk about that. You know, largely the consumer is still fine and spending and the, the 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 market of consumer stocks is telling you that that's not sustainable and that may or may not be the case we we only time will tell thus far we are taking price we're probably moaning and groaning about it but in in large in a large to a large degree we're we're still spending i do i i mean i see it in my own family we are definitely making some decisions Grocery shopping is certainly part of that, but but it, it expands further. So in your coverage from a, from a retail and e-commerce perspective, are there areas where you think, you know, after after the last couple of years where we overconsumed for a variety of reasons, are we in this, you know, where are we in the window of of potential underconsuming to catch up to long-term trends? you know, and, and let's, let's talk, you know, companies and what, what opportunities or what areas that you're just like, Oh, I want to stay as far away from that area as humanly possible, at least for now. So, yeah, it's a really good question. So what I think, sometimes I like to make comments that may or may not be true. So whenever I'm making those comments, I'll just say, this is a comment that I don't I haven't actually fact test fact tested, but I think it makes sense. Um, 
I would assume, right? I'll say it with I'll say it with authority, pretending it's right, but with that preface, so you know that it, that it's not tested. I don't think when we have inflation, we have certain categories which are inflationary and certain categories which are deflationary at the same time. Maybe that's not true, but when I think about consumer, like what we talked about, cereal is incredibly inflationary. Apparel is already deflationary. That to me suggests that it's not a function of recessionary environments. It's not a function of the interest rate. It's not a function of the consumer is just being being forced to spend up because supply chain. To me, that is where I come up with this hypothesis that we're testing around the replenishment arc. And if I need more cereal now and average costs are up, then any of the cereal companies, which I'm not close to, will say, I'm going to price up. If I need gas, doesn't matter how much gas I bought last year, I need more gas, they have the ability to price up. Conversely, if I bought all my three wick candles or six pairs of sneakers or a grill or a Peloton, whatever, I just don't need to buy those things now. Not only do I need to buy them, I'm not going to buy them. So what we need to realize, what we need to internalize is if there was no price elasticity on the way up, if the last two years you were able to take price and I kept buying it, Let's not pretend and, and kind of convince ourselves that there's going to be price elasticity on the way down. It doesn't matter how much you take off a candle. If I have 30 in my closet right now, I'm not buying another one. So don't discount it. So that's this idea that what I think we want to internalize is a little bit less what the category is. Is it good or bad? More think about the category in the context of, do people need it right now? Because I tend to think that we could be. So when we think about brands and retailers, there's sell in and sell through. The brands sell their products into Macy's. Macy's sells that product through to the consumer. Whenever the sell-in, whenever Ralph Lauren sees that what they're selling to Macy's starts getting over and above the speed with which Macy's is selling to the consumer, the brand pulls back. They take a break. That's normal. When sell-in doesn't match sell-through, you hold back a little bit. For some reason, and, and it's more anomalous, so, so it doesn't happen very frequently. So that's probably the reason. But when sell-through doesn't match consumer end use, why don't we pull back then? And that's this idea of saying, why don't we take a few months? And, and it's very hard to figure out what that replenishment curve is. But the more discretionary it is, the less, and, and if you bought a lot of it last year, then the longer that tail is. So from my perspective, from a stock or from a company, I think a lot of these companies probably need to think about in terms of duration. Are there certain products, like, again, you and I have talked about Peloton. Peloton took their demand. At this point, it's, not, it's no longer controversial for me to say they misread their demand cues, believed they would last forever. A lot of companies bought a lot of inventory. That's what we're dealing with. The problem was Peloton completely reorganized their fixed cost infrastructure, which is also very symptomatic of what Under Armour did five years ago. So don't do that. But if your biggest problem is inventory, then what you need to do is you need to wind that inventory down. Take that time. If you fit in that category and you don't now try to blow through that inventory, then you're going to be okay. We'll, we'll wake up a year from now and you'll be, in, you'll be in a healthier spot. A lot of these companies, like I said, Under Armour is much healthier than they were pre-pandemic. Bath & Body Works is healthier than they were. Victoria's Secret wasn't making money. They're healthier. But I get that that's hard. And, and honestly, the biggest, the most important piece there is you and I right now are talking about very large brands. If you're a smaller brand, what you're hearing is that guy on, on the podcast is telling me not selling. Doesn't he know that I've got bills, that I have a cost of carry, that I have a warehouse, I need a balance sheet. So I get that. And I, and I appreciate that. 
So if first you need to make sure you can survive, but if you can make it through, if your if your balance sheet, if your inventory is not going to destroy you, then don't let it destroy your brand. How can we let's let's talk an individual company for a minute if you can, um, Lulu. Yeah. Lulu is iconic brand, great margins. Last quarter, I think margins were down a little bit. Um, you know, talk to me about about your view of of that brand and their their ability to. I mean, they're the only brand really that's that's kind of been hot on Nike's tail and and able to grow and much faster. I mean, I, you know, the five year revenue growth for Nike, as far as Y charts goes, looks like 6%, Lulu's 21. So obviously Lulu has a bigger multiple and they, sh and they should, right? So is Lulu, has Lulu kind of reach, are they reaching that ceiling of their ability to, to, to get to Nike? Nike is, is Nike an outlier or does Lulu have a lot of blue sky ahead because of the brand and the brand relevancy and their international aspirations, all that stuff. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So I'm gonna give you a bunch of facts. I'll let you um, maybe create a conclusion, but you and I have talked about this, that some, some other work that my team have, has historically done, we found that there are certain levels where brands peak. We found that there's these revenue thresholds that you would assume there's no reason there should be a uniform threshold, but it come, when it comes to brands, ubiquity matters. And so the higher price point, the fewer the units, the lower the price point, the more the units, but at some point you hit this threshold. That threshold, if you're a direct-to-consumer business, and to be clear, to set the terms, direct-to-consumer means your channel versus wholesale. So it's e-com and stores versus wholesale. It's not stores versus, di versus digital. If you have a DTC business, you generally peak at 3 billion in North America in revenues. If you have wholesale, you can get five to six. What we found are that companies, humans run businesses, not algorithms, and therefore people go too far and then they come back down. And the question is what, if they do it proactively, they can protect margin. If not, it's painful. Lulu's there, Lulu's at that revenue threshold. Now you'll immediately respond to me and say, uh, Nike, right? <laughs> There's nothing to do, like blows these numbers out of the water. And so the reality is, yeah, there are a few exceptions. So you would say to me, okay, so does Lulu have permission to be an exception? So if we analyze Lulu versus Nike, it's funny, we did a report years ago called Deconstructing an Athletic P&L. And what we found is that Nike, Adi, Under Armour, Puma, not Lulu, but the big four non-Lulu non athletic companies all have very similar operating expense structures. What I mean by that is they all spend 10 cents of every dollar on marketing, right? It's a very variable business. And, and that's the biggest example, but, but it, it kept on going. So you think about it from that perspective, we all know that e-commerce is a variable margin business. Amazon wins because how do you compete, right? In a variable world, the best thing you can be is the largest one. They take all their gross margin profits, power it back into the SG&A mode, and it's impossible to compete. Nike was the same thing. So in the athletic sphere, what you, what you were talking about with, with UCLA and Under Armour was, if I have to spend 10 cents of every dollar on marketing just to stay alive, if my revs are 8X Under Armour's, well, then my marketing budget is 8X as well. That's math. So the thing about this is if we think about, I said it was all except Lulu, Lulu's P&L looked a lot more like Michael Kors retailer Tiffany. Lulu's P&L looks like a very productive box, a store, a fixed cost business. And the beauty of that is the margin is simply constrained to your sales productivity. So you go back to old school retail, thinking about sales per square foot, Lulu sales per square foot are industry leading and therefore the margins look beautiful. What we have to wonder though is 
if you said to me, does Lula have permission to stretch beyond to be a top line exception? I would say, sure, but Nike has footwear, big footwear business, that's lower margin. Nike has wholesale, big business, Lulu does not. Nike spends 10 cents of every dollar on marketing, Lulu does not. And most importantly, and when I say Nike, it's all of those non-Lulus, Nike has an average selling price, that's a fraction of Lulus. So the question of where we go from here, both a revenue and or a margin conversation has to be, what does Lulu wanna be from here, right? Is Lulu at this fever pitch where they get to say, I love my brand elevation. They've protected their brand. Their, their brand has been truly special. But are you now hitting a threshold where companies don't grow this large and maintain above 20% EBIT margins unless they're LVMH? So that's one point that I would bring up. The second thing is just because you brought it up, their gross margin did miss last quarter. I mean, that, that's what you're suggesting. Their inventories are up. So there's just pieces to internalize. Nothing, nothing ever is, is that clear or clean. But I think what you have to decide is, can the business continue to... The business as it stands is amazing. You're not buying the business as it stands. You're buying the business in the future. So if you believe that everything they've done, every, the way that the path to 6 billion is going to be the path to 12, then you're fine. If you have questions around that, then you have to take a minute. Yeah. And we, we sold it, um, had a wonderful ride. And, and I, you know, I was just a, a little cautious about their ability to keep growing the way they were growing. Maybe that's why they've started to endeavor to be some, you know, offer some sneakers. I, it's going to be interesting to see whether that's, you know, the sneaker business is, you know, not, not as easy as the apparel huh. business, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the mirror, a lot of reasons. you know, and There's mirrors of... questionable. I mean, and we love the mirror. I mean, my wife uses it literally daily. I use it once in a while. We use it all through the pandemic. It, I, you know, I, I don't know what their intentions are for mirror and they've certainly been very slow. So it's, it's a question. Technically the stock doesn't, you know, the chart, I wouldn't say is that compelling, but you could say that about just about everybody, every stock in, in this market. <laughs> so that's not unique. I think we have, I th listen, I think they de-emphasize mirror. I think that we have seen Nike under like every big brand embraces connected fitness at one point and every big brand has pulled back from it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, frankly, Peloton is pulling back from it, right? Peloton stories, they want to be a content provider more so than an equipment provider. So I think that, I, but, but on the flip side of that, I think it's been, they've written down, they've, they've telegraphed different pieces there. So I think if you want to own Lulu, I don't think you're owning it for mirror and you probably don't have to worry about mirror is one thing I would say. Right. So, so what do you, what, what do you like? I, I mean, in, with, with the S and P down, whatever, 20, the NASDAQ down 30 plus the average stock in the NASDAQ down 50. I mean, consumer discretionary and technology have been the best sectors long-term. I mean, up until, you know, November, December of last year, those two sectors beat every other sector in the market one, three, five, 10, 15, 20, 30. And there's obvious reasons to that consumer driven economy, consumer driven global economy, uh, technology drive at the center of everything. That obviously is as we've kind of had that 2000 to 2002 dip or the 2007, 2009 dip for those two sectors. So there's a lot of dislocation in consumer discretionary. 
that usually provides opportunity. Whether or not we're at the bottom is anybody's guess. I'm not even going to try that. But there's certainly bound to be some interesting opportunities with valuations, expectations falling down uh, with stock prices with, you know, if you have some duration on your side, you know, short term, obviously anything's possible with all the macro head, headwinds. But, you know, looking out 12 to 24 months, what excites you on the on the on the consumer side? Yeah, so I have to be careful here because I don't know listeners and duration matters and not trying to catch fall. It's easy to catch a falling knife if you don't have capital on the line. So we sell siders get very thick uh, hands apparently. But listen, I think the way that I would frame it, I'll, I'll twist the answer. I'll, I'll, I'll answer a different question. If you could go to sleep for the next year, I do think Under Armour works. If you go to sleep for the next year, I do think Bath and Body Works should not be trading at five times earnings. So I think there are businesses that I can't tell you. I don't think they belong where they are right now, which means I can't tell you they won't go further, right? I remember part of part of one of the things we have to do in my day job is within the reports, we have to have a bull bear. We have to have an upside downside. So I have to have a price target, but I have to have an upside downside. And back on the Peloton rise, I think my upside was effectively whatever the 52 week high was with the explanation of, I can't explain why it was there in the first place. So I can't tell you it's not going back. And I said a little tongue in cheek, but I also meant it seriously. There's a certain way when, when stocks can become the most detached, that's when you and I can say, this is an opportunity, but I can't call the bottom on that approach. So that's why I look for the companies that to me are healthier now than they were walking into the pandemic. If I look at an Under Armour that's went from a cash burner to a cash generator, I just need to make sure that the business, that, that, that the inside doesn't destroy the business. Same thing with the Bath and Body Works, where if the conversation here is, you know, oh, we might be going through a little bit more of a difficult sales environment because people just need to replenish all the three wick candles they bought last year. Then I can't tell you where we are in the next day, but I can tell you that I feel better than that. This is a healthier business than it was pre-pandemic and the stock is worse than it was. Um, looking further out, I think that the off-pricers are just good business models also. So like, like this a is TJ a TJX or a Ross? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I think TJ will continue to compound the uh, the market share conversation. Um, again, longer term, understanding what they stand for. And the reason there, in the spirit of you and I talking about brands, our TJ has created a brand for itself as well. And you think about 20 years ago, you wouldn't, you would never say you got a shirt from TJ, right? It was, it was embarrassing. You might want to, you might want to find that treasure, but you didn't, it wasn't something to be proud of. And they went out and created the fashionistas and now value is, is not a stigma. So I think that they become, they've become very important to the consumer. I think they increasingly become very important to the brands. You know, on that topic, that we, we know that there's a ton of inventory. And we know that TJ and Ross are going to get a lot of inventory, uh, probably higher in inventory than they're than they're than they usually get, and and that has been cited as an opportunity. I don't own them right now, only because I'm like, well, just because they have a lot of inventory doesn't mean that there's a lot of demand, you know, because we overconsumed in in a lot of different categories. So. You know, from a demand perspective, from a consumer spending, do you think from the apparel, I didn't get a chance to look at all the components of retail sales, but do you think that there's going to be some strong demand in those categories? Or maybe there's, maybe because 
people are looking to save money at a difficult time when inflation's high and they're getting squeezed, that's going to drive people if they need some things to go to TJ and, and, and Ross. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that, you know, demand opportunity side. Yeah. So I think that'll go back to the replenishment curve conversation. So this is very much there. There's certain things people won't need, but I guarantee you the, the beauty of a replenishment curve is if your child doesn't fit into the pants last year and they're going back to school, your replenishment curve gets pretty quick. So it'll depend on the category, it'll depend on the motivation, but but that's that piece there. But the, the most important part is this is not a conversation. And, and I will say to your point, it's a good point. If demand is bad, do you have a little bit of a fail safe where that just means there's going to be more inventory that's going to come their way and people are going to, going to head their direction. But I think the more important point here goes back to your comment right before this of, I guarantee you with 100% certainty, there will be demand over the next 12, 24 months. So if we're talking about the companies, right, looking at where the stocks are right now, you have to decide and, and it's easy to say things like, no, we don't have to call the bottom, but what should I buy now that's not going to hurt me, right? That's the same sentence. So as we think about what are the brands, what are the opportunities amid the sell-off, I think you have to be honest with yourself. The same way that I tell the brands you have to be honest with themselves, I tell my, my clients you have to be honest with like You have to be honest with yourself in terms of your duration. If you think you have a year duration, but if the stock goes down 10% in the next two weeks, you're, you're out, you got to figure out, then you're effectively deciding you can call the bottom. And I just think that's a very hard thing to do right now. So hard. So, so absolutely hard. I mean, we, you know, we have only have a couple more minutes. Talk, what's your view of the, the, the house of brands concept, you know, Decker's gap, all these companies that have the, you know, brands underneath them. I mean, De Decker's is very intriguing because Hoka is a, is a big growth driver or VF. I, I mean, I, Selfishly, I wish Vans was separate from VF because Vans is such a dominant brand and the, the amazing ability to be relevant when I was a kid and still now, but I can't invest in, you know, in that, in that sliver of the business. So, I mean, in consumer, how, what's your thought on House of Brands? Good, bad, depends? Eric, Eric roughly, how many stocks you own? I mean, right now I'm at 20. I'm a, I'm a pretty concentrated guy, 30 at most. You're not a single stock. How many of those stocks are massive alpha excitement bets? And how many of those stocks are core, compounding, boring, but will be something you're, you're proud of? And I don't, I don't, the number is not relevant. The question is, do you have both? I, I do, but most of them are core now. So... The point that I'm getting at is you're not going to sell you. No one's investing in your fund if all you own is Apple or if all you own is Peloton two years ago. So the idea is they're paying you for diversification. And someone might say, oh, I want, I want Eric's number one pick every, I just want it. That's the only thing I want. I just want that. And the point is, well, that's not how it works. You don't get that. Right. And, and you don't, you wouldn't want that because that comes with a different risk reward profile. When brands do that well, that's a powerful story. In my opinion, what goes to unnoticed, or rather what is very hard to appreciate is there is nothing special about a house of brands. If your portfolio was a collection of alpha throw the dart picks, 
it would not be a very good portfolio. What you need is you need to know that you have certain potential home runs, you have certain potential 20 percenters, you have certain potential compounders, and you know that within that, that helps smooth things out. Same thing with companies. A house of portfolio, portfolio of brands, the same thing as a portfolio of stock. I think very often North America-based houses, we'll call them, are focused on every brand has to be sexy, standalone, high growth, high multiple, high margin story. If it's not, why would I want to own it? And I think if you look back what VF historically and LB historically, like what the good, the great integrators did very well was they had boring, consistent, cash generating brands as part of their portfolio that then helped them pay for and fund all the exciting stories that were the ones that got you the multiple and that you would talk about on an earnings call. But you have to have both because if you only have one side of that equation, what am I really buying? And to your point, I may as well just buy a standalone. So that's how I view it. I, I can be completely wrong here. And I want to be clear, I could be completely wrong about everything I just said. But from my perspective, if you can smooth out your risk reward, and then you can benefit on the back end because the notion of benefiting on the back end should simply be math as well. Like there should be no one, that shouldn't be contentious. And yet so frequently, why do you get, do you get a conglomerate discount or a premium? And that changes based on the era and what, what we're all looking for as investment, but also changes based on the company. And so my recommendation or my suggestion would simply be internalize that it's okay to have boring because boring helps fund excitement. Right. Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think now, you know, people want purity. I believe, you know, I'm a growth investor and I want to invest in highly relevant, growing, high margin brands. You know, so, you know, I mean, I've said this about Amazon, you know, I, I, the, the, the core retail business, the low margin, seemingly even more asset heavy you know, high labor cost kind of business tethered to the Ferrari AWS and the ad business is frustrating, right? Think, can you imagine how much more demand there would be for AW, an AWS slash advertising stub versus the retail? And, you know, they probably, that's why they don't do it, <laughs> right? But, but as an investor, I'd love to be able to invest in vans, or I'd love to be able to invest in well, actually, Deckers is interesting to me because they do have, you know, they don't have a lot of brands, but they do, you know, UGG just keeps chugging along and generating a lot of cash. And, you know, there's it's it's still relevant and Hoka is growing and then they have some other smaller stuff. So um, any any last words on, you know, close your eyes and understand that this is there are no predictions, there are no recommendations do you think consumer discretionary, and we'll just even take it broader, is consumer discretionary, does it regain its, its glory, or is the consumer largely those stocks, you know, a, 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 a difficult, you know, do they have a difficult 12 months ahead? Or has a lot of that Never been, been priced in? Never bet against the U.S. consumer. Just make sure you very much understand them. I think that's the, you need both halves of those sentences, but I think that's the easiest way to say it. The consumer will be back. Frankly, I don't think the consumer has gone anywhere, but you need to understand the nuance. Anytime we stick to the macro, 
you're looking backwards. Look to the micro to project the future. Right. And and from an e-commerce perspective, you cover, you know, Amazon, the whole, you know, Etsy, all that, that, that stuff? Um, I don't do Amazon anymore. I have okay. historically, but, but again, I obviously have to understand e-com. Okay. Etsy and, you know, a lot of those. My, my thought about these are we're describing channels as opposed to, right? It's just another form of distribution. And Absolutely. you and I have talked a little bit about wholesale versus retail. I've done a lot of work about digital versus stores. If you're focused, what I've loved about your about conversations I've had with you are the brand focus starts with the fact, the obvious implication of it's all about the consumer. Right? People ask about customer centricity. Does it matter? Like, it's a stupid question. Of course, customer centricity matters. The question is, what does that mean? Right? Employer centricity matters too, and P and L centricity matters too, and a lot. Of, you got to be like understand what your business is. But the point being here. Once we start siloing individual pieces, that's a conversation that, that I love having about math and figuring out what the, the ultimate piece is. Econ doesn't win, stores don't win, wholesale doesn't win. Selling products to a consumer that wants to buy them wins, and it's a constant conversation of figuring out how to do that. There you go. All right, man. Uh, Simeon Siegel, Managing Director, Equity Research at BMO Capital, covering retail and e-commerce. I mean, listen, I... <laughs> from your earlier comments on Twitter, sometimes I'm just edgy. And maybe that's why I think, that's why I'm attracted to, <laughs> to Under Armour, right? I think they should be the edgiest brand in the industry, right? I, I just, that's how you shock people, I guess, and try to get some 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 attention. But I have, I have been, I have been largely harsh in the one concept of analysts, broadly speaking, and that is just when when you see a stock go down 60% and then you see the downgrade, but the target price is still 50% higher than where the stock is currently. And you're like, oh my God, <laughs> that's the only thing that I constantly just, my head spins off. Uh, Listen, you, you, you and I became friends because you're harsh, but not malicious. There you go. Oh, I want to tell him I'm going to use that with my wife. <laughs> but she says, Eric, you can't say that. You shouldn't say that. <laughs> Eric, you don't know these people. <laughs> uh, anyway, man, really, really appreciate your time, your insights. You, you are the best in the business. And uh, it's super fun to chat about all things consumer. And maybe we'll maybe we'll chat further on the on the Under Armour thing, because, man, I, I love a good value opportunity if there's a catalyst. And I'm still trying to figure out if there's a catalyst, if if they get it internally. I know they think I know they think things are 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 somewhat broken, whatever adjective you want to use. I'm just not sure they have a plan yet. Because sometimes it's hard, you know. Sometimes you have to be an outsider to see all of the stuff that needs to be fixed, and you're not emotionally attached to what you've built and the legacy. And you can just be very, you know, unemotional about saying. Get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it, add it, add it, enhance it, enhance it, you know, be, and I don't know if they've done that or not. Well, the best part of retail is there's never an ending. So to be continued. Absolutely. Well, uh, have yeah. a good, uh, have a good rest of your Friday and, uh, and hope you're doing something fun, getting out to the beach or something on the weekend. We'll figure it out. Good to be right. here. Great to see you. And Sounds until the good. Next time. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the dynamic brand section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the dynamic brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.